0: everybody. Welcome back to our series called The Stranger. Do you remember what this is all about? Jesus was a stranger when he arrived at the town of Capernaum. He made it his headquarters, his home, for the three years of his public ministry. And we're studying the encounters that Jesus had with the people of that town because they reveal the heart. Do you know the heart of God, of Jesus Christ? Well, this series is a pursuit of... Of that understanding. And last week we had a message entitled The Fisherman when we looked at his encounter with Peter. And today is entitled The Outcast. You know, it was a while ago that I uh, was at O'Hare flying out to Sacramento to visit my youngest brother. And I was kind of in a hurry rushing up to the security lines when I was delighted to see that there was no line at all. I mean, how often do you see that, huh? And so with great joy, I came up, and the, the attendant lady stopped me. And she said, may I see your boarding pass, please? I'm like, okay. And, and I showed it to her. And then all of a sudden, she said, sir, this line is reserved for our premier status customers only. <laughs> and she said, you're invited to use that line. And it wrapped around the earth a few times, you know? And I'm like, oh, Excuse me. Well, uh, right then, a premier status customer. By the way, if you're a premier status customer, <laughs> I genuinely love you. <laughs> because the Lord says I have to. Not just me <laughs> This premier status customer came up, and I'm not kidding you, the lady changed her tune. All of a sudden, she was so nice. Welcome, sir. We hope you enjoy your flight. Come right on in. And I'm like, where was the love for me? You know, you, you loved on that guy so nice. Made him feel like a million bucks. Treated me like dirt. This isn't right, you know. I didn't say anything, but I felt it. And I think that's why I I was kind of a little miffed. And I, I, I normally can walk past the red carpet club without being bothered by it. But since I had already been snubbed once, and I looked and I thought, what happens in there? You know, that... that mystery wonderland of opulence, and I I can only dream of the delights that go on for those of you who are permitted beyond that sacred guard that's standing there keeping the the riffraff out. Well, as we were at the gates and as they started to Invite folks to board the plane. You know how it works? At this time we're delighted to invite our first class customers to board first. Would you come on up? You know? And then she said, if the rest of our customers would remain seated until your group number is called and I'm like Where's the love? You know, you were so kind to them and now with us you're saying, Sit, sit, stay there, don't move until we tell you to. And finally, my group is, you know, the last group, and I come into the plane, and they, and they make you walk through first class. Do you notice that? <laughs> you have to see what you're missing, you know? And I walk through, and the first class customers just kind of look at me like, pass on, you know, get past, sitting in these thrones that are so big, you know, what human being needs that much seat? You know, I just kind of drool and envy as I go by. And no kidding, on this flight, I go, I, I realize at that point, I need to use a washer. And so I head to the lavatory, and the lady stops me. She goes, I'm sorry, sir. These lavatories are reserved for our first-class customers. <laughs> Economy lavatories are in the back of the plane somewhere. I can't see them. But... Can you believe that? I mean, do they have golden toilet seats or what? I mean, I'd love to just see in there and see what makes it so special, you know? I." And then uh, I sat down, longingly looking at first class. I was towards the front of economy. And as I'm looking up, they pull the curtain. <laughs> I can't even have the privilege of looking into first class. I'm not sure. You know, if that's, Maybe it's so the first class folks don't have to see us riffraff in the back. I'm not sure what the curtain's purpose is. But they did leave the curtain open enough that I could peer. And I was peering ticked off at this point, and they passed out hot towels for them to dab their premier faces with, you know, like this. And and I wasn't even given a paper napkin to blow my nose. I'm like, where's the love? I mean, you are loving those people with such service, and I'm, you know, like this, you know, come on. Ridiculous. And then something happened that actually... Brought me joy. Uh, our flight was delayed, and you say, "How can that bring you joy?" Well, what brought, what caused the delay? I just found it ironic. Um, the the pilot got on the loudspeaker and he says, "Folks, I regret to inform you that our departure is going to be delayed." He said, he said, the President of the United States, President Obama, is actually landing at O'Hare, and all flights have been stopped until he has landed and has been escorted off of the uh, airport property. And it was an hour that we sat in the plane waiting. Now. It bothered us in economy a little bit, but I could see how much it bothered the first class passengers, and, you know, they're already ticked because he taxes them more, you know, and he's been robbing them, and they're, I can't believe this, you know, and I see hands flailing, and I see stewardess called, you're kidding me, you know, and it was a blessed reminder to me that no matter how important you are, there's always somebody more important than you. No matter how much love you get, there's always somebody getting more. You know what I mean? And that little day, that flight, was a reminder to me of the system that you and I live in. We live in a world that categorizes people. And we have to figure out where do we fit in in that system. And the love flow goes to those on the top of that system. Isn't that true? There are people... No matter how special you are, there are people that are better looking than you are. There are people who are more physically fit than you are. There are people who are more wealthy and successful than you are. There are people who are smarter and more gifted than you are. And they tend to get the oohs and the ahs and the love. And how do we relate in this system? And what does this say of God? You know, the natural question is, does God operate with a similar system? Is God impressed with impressive people? And how does God feel about those who are, quite honestly, unimpressive? You know, it's interesting, as we turn uh, in our passage, at first, it seems that God operates by that system. I'll give you the context before we read. The context is here in Capernaum, the, one of the most important people of the whole town, his name was Jairus. He was the ruler of the synagogue. Everybody was so impressed with him. Well, he came up to Jesus publicly and said, my daughter is sick. In fact, I think she's dying. Would you please come to our house and heal my daughter? And everybody watched and listened to find out if Jesus was going to act like everybody else, and that is falling all over themselves for the important. And sure enough, Christ says, yes, I will. I will come to your house. I will heal your daughter. And the skeptic in us says, see, I knew it. There you go. You know, God too is like, oh, look at this. I have an opportunity to serve the important people. I'm going to rush all over that. But lest we make the faulty conclusion that God's heart and love operates by the systems of this world, we must read on. So what's happening is Jairus is next to Jesus, and they're walking the streets of this town of Capernaum. The crowds are following because they want to witness the miracle that is about to take place. And the crowds are, according to the Scripture, thick, thick. People are packed in these small streets, and so you need to use your imagination to see what's going on in this moment. It's in that context that we pick up in Mark 5. So if you have your Bible, please open. If you want to grab the Bible in front of your chair, it's on page 764. All right, 764. Mark 5:25 says this, that there was a woman in the crowd, a woman in the crowd who had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. Constant bleeding. Uh, the 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 Greek there points to a perpetual menstrual bleeding, and some doctors speculate that maybe it was cervical cancer or possibly some other related disease that just caused this woman not to bleed monthly but to bleed straight through the whole month, and through every month for 12 years. Verse 26, she had suffered a great deal from many doctors. And over the years, she had spent everything she had to pay these doctors, but she had gotten no better. In fact, she had gotten worse. Can we just imagine how bad the life is of this woman? Can we imagine together what it was like to be her. So she's miserable. I mean, that's evident, right? I mean, her pain would have been severe. Chronic bleeding in an iron-deprived society uh, would have brought anemia, and she would have been just sick and tired and miserable all the time. But add to her physical ailment her financial situation. And what is that? The passage says she had spent every time she had on these doctors who only made her suffering worse. And so she's penniless. Can anyone relate to that financial anxiety that she must have dealt with? And to make matters even worse, there was a stigma associated with that particular type of disease in that culture. Uh, They believed that blood was symbolically or ceremonially unclean. And anyone who was bleeding was unclean and unable to go to the synagogue, to the temple, to the place of prayer, to offer a sacrifice. Just no. And you had to wait until your bleeding was stopped. Well, in this case, her bleeding never stopped. And so she was perpetually unclean. They actually had a term for a woman with this condition. They called them a zaba. And a zaba was to be avoided at all costs. Because not only was she unclean, but anyone she touched became unclean in that religious system. And so if you were a Zaba, you were a liability. You weren't even human. You were scorned. In fact, there was a famous ancient rabbi by the name of Rabban, And Rabban described how to avoid contamination by azaba. And here's what he said. He said, not only don't touch them, he says, don't even look at them because their gaze can contaminate you ceremonially. Don't even talk to them because their breath can contaminate you. Rabban went so far to say, don't even walk anywhere they have tread because their footsteps could contaminate you. And as a result of this conviction, they kicked them out of town. They banished them from the city limits and forced them to live quarantined on the outskirts. And lepers as well were forced to live out there. And so there was a a community of outcasts that lived in lean-tos and tents outside of the town, forbidden by law to come inside the pain of this woman. Add to that her sense of spiritual rejection. It was the popular belief in those days that her condition as a Zaban was the wrath and judgment of God. And so it would have been told to her, you are a sinner, clearly, because God has inflicted you with this disease. And not only are you a sinner, but you have no means to forgiveness because you are not allowed to go to the temple and offer a sacrifice where forgiveness comes. So you're stuck in your perpetual rejected state from society and from God. Enter into that woman's skin for a little bit and imagine what life was like to be hungry, penniless, unloved, despised by people and by God. The emptiness and pain is unthinkable. And this woman, in her desperation, she tried something. She took a leap, a dangerous, uh, 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 audacious, illegal leap of faith. Let me read verse 27. This woman had heard about Jesus. Isn't that just a packed statement? (laughs) The reputation of this Jesus had reached her. He had been in Capernaum enough For her to have heard a bit about him. And it says, she heard about Jesus, and so she came. She came up behind him through the crowd, and she touched his robe. For she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I think I will be healed. Folks, not only is this illegal, she is putting her very life in jeopardy because if they catch her doing this, she's going to be killed. Uh, the Gospel of Luke says that she tried to go undiscovered. So you can imagine she had wrapped scarves around her head and across her face and pulled her cloak over, and she's hiding. The people know her. They've seen her you know, as they come in and out of town. And if they knew that she was among them, that she was touching and brushing up to them they're walking in her footsteps and they're she's breathing on them and she's looking at them i mean they're they're being contaminated in every way thinkable but this woman says i don't care i have a chance and i got to go for it maybe this jesus is the answer to my Greatest dreams. And so, as you can imagine, she's pushing herself in this crowd, shoving herself, you know, trying not to be noticed. And finally, she's got close enough, and she reaches out, and she touches Jesus' robe. What happens? Well, let's take a look. It says in verse 29 that immediately the bleeding stopped. She could feel it. She could feel in her body that she had been healed of her terrible condition. Next verse, Jesus realized at once that the healing power had gone out from him. And so he he turned around in the crowd and he asked, who just touched my robe? (laughs) Wouldn't you have loved to have been there? And look how the people respond. His disciples said to him, look at the crowd pressing in around you. How can you ask who touched me? Everybody's touching you. But he kept on looking around to see who had done it. Now, this moment is utterly terrifying for this poor woman because Jesus is like, no, 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 no. Somebody touched my robe. And she knew that Jesus was looking for her. And in one sense, she was just overwhelmed with joy about this sense of healing, but in another sense, realizing that her plan to touch his robe and then get out before she was noticed wasn't going to work. She was going to be found out. And she could be killed for what she has done. And so finally, she couldn't hide. Jesus was vigilant and intent on finding her. Look at verse 33. Then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, she came and she fell to her knees in front of Jesus. And she confessed to him what she had done. This is the moment when the town realizes who she is. She pulls back her scarf, and they gasp and step back as far as they can. And they look at her on her knees, trembling with fear, because she knows these people are irate. How dare you? You know where you belong, and it is not here. How dare you contaminate all of us by your unthinkable approach to Jesus? acting as if you have the right to even be here. And then her anticipation of the wrath of Jesus himself must have been off the charts because if the people of the town are mad, how much more angry is the rabbi? I mean, the rabbis were the guardians of the moral law, of the ceremonial law. And so she looked at this Jesus and thought, oh my, now his wrath is going to fall in full force upon me. My doom is is secure. And she braced herself for his response. <laughs> oh, how sweet these words must have sounded. Can we read them together? Let me read them, and then we're going to study them. It says in verse 34, Jesus said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering. It's over. Can we like take some time and meditate a bit on each of the words or phrases in this verse? Because this is stunning and shocking and revealing of the heart of Jesus and the heart of God revealed through Christ. So let's do that. Daughter. You may think that's a common way to refer to people back then, but it's not. In fact, in the New Testament, that's the only place that the term daughter is used as a greeting of somebody. And so this is intentional, unexpected, and meaningful. What is Jesus saying by calling her daughter? First of all, he's saying, though the world, the town, wants to be disconnected from you, Jesus says, I want to be, be your father. I want to be family. I consider you intimately connected to me. You're my daughter. And daughter is obviously a statement of immense tenderness and affection. In other words, Jesus is saying, I know that everybody just cowers and runs from you, but I adore you. You are precious to me like a precious daughter of a father. That's how I feel. You're my daughter. And she probably could have meditated on that simple word for the rest of her lives, saying to somebody, I am a precious daughter. Isn't that beautiful? And not only that, Jesus says, your faith, oh my, your faith is amazing. It has made you well. Now, I want to be careful. It was the power of God that healed her. It always is when God heals. But God says that our faith matters. Our, our dependence on him, faith is reaching out to God and saying, you're my only hope and our confidence in him. I really believe you can help me. And when she reached out, in that desperate reach for his cloak, what was it? That was faith. That was her saying, Jesus, you're my only hope. And Jesus turns to her, nobody compliments this woman. Everybody criticizes this woman. And she hears Jesus celebrate her and just say, wow, your faith, you get it. Everybody look, at this woman. You people, you don't get it. She understands the essence of what a faith connection to Almighty God looks like. How about that, you know? And she's like, you're complimenting me? No one compliments me. And then uh, Jesus says, go in peace. And and. There's great cultural significance in that statement. That was the formal proclamation of spiritual authority announcing the salvation, the reconciliation, the right status of an individual with God. It was peace with God. So when someone brought a sacrifice to the temple in Jerusalem, upon offering that sacrifice, the priest would pronounce, go in peace. The peace with God that you have longed for is yours. And so Jesus is in this go in peace. He is announcing, he is proclaiming her reconciled right status with God. Something she never dreamed of. She knew she was a wicked sinner and assumed she would always be despised by the Almighty. And now Jesus is proclaiming, you are forgiven and reconciled, you belong to the family of God. She must have, did he just say go in peace? Did he just tell me go in peace? And then how about this? Your suffering is over. Is Jesus being redundant here? What's going on, you know? Is he telling her that she's been healed? She already knows that she's healed. He already said you're well. Why is he saying it again? Your suffering is over. I really believe Jesus is just celebrating the good fortune that has come her way. He's going, do you realize your suffering is over? You have been in a dark tunnel of misery and you have come to the light at the end of the tunnel. You have journeyed faithfully, endured, and Jesus is rejoicing in her joy. Jesus is celebrating her good fortune. He finds delight in her joy. Let me ask you a question. Does Jesus say these things to you? Are these the kind of things you hear the Lord speak into your heart? It's the kind of things the Lord says. The Bible tells us you want to know the heart of God as it relates to people. And you say, well, maybe God says things like this to you, Jeff, because you're a pastor. But I am a mess. He's not going to cherish me and gush over me. Wait a minute. Do you understand the context of who's being spoken to? This was the most unlikely person in town to be adored in this way. The unconditional. You know what unconditional means? Our love is all conditional. I'll love you if I find you lovable. I'll love you if I think you're worthy of it. That's how the world system works. But the love of God is grace. Grace is love that's undeserved. And it's born not out of the fact that we're so perfect, but that he's so loving. That's the love of another kind. It's not of this world system. It's something very strange to us based on our experience. And that's how God loves. And so I go back to my question. Do you hear the Lord say this kind of stuff to you? Do you find the Lord cherishing you as his son, as his daughter? Do you meditate on that truth, that he looks at you and he goes, you're my boy, you're my girl, come here, I adore you. Do you envision God saying words of great compliment to you? Your faith, man, you nailed it today. Well, yeah, Lord, but I messed it up 14 times before that. You did, and I forgive you, but you got it right this time. Remember when that person came up to you and you said that kind of thing? Do you see God celebrating your victories? You're like, uh, I don't see him celebrating my victories. Then you don't know him well enough yet. He's still a stranger to a degree that needs to be addressed. How about uh, go in peace? Do you know that you're saved? Do you know you're forgiven and reconciled to him? Has that proclamation reverberated in your soul and brought you unending joy? What about the, your suffering is over, the the celebration of God, the joy he finds in our victories? Do you see God as just having a party because some good fortune has come your way as a result of his grace? Do you see God just saying, I love that you're enjoying this blessing in my life, or in your life? Folks, And none of us hear these words enough, and yet this is what God is speaking. It's what he spoke then. It's what he speaks today. And so we must be a people who press in to the pursuit of Jesus. I want to go back to this woman's decision to go for it. Can you imagine her pushing through the crowd? I'm going to get to this Jesus, and she's getting shoved around, but she will not give up. Is that you? Are you pressing in to touch Jesus? Are you going to prayer every day? Are you going to Bible study every day? Are you meditating on the love of God in hot pursuit of understanding and experiencing his gracious affection for you? Or is the truth, you're just not in hot pursuit of that? God says, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all of your heart. Our daily routine must be marked by the active, intentional pursuit of the face of God if we're to hear him speak to our soul these life-giving, loving messages. When you ride on the train, when you sit in premier first class seating on the plane, all of these are an opportunity for us to turn our mind to higher realities, to meditate on God, to return to passages like this and say, Lord, though I don't feel it, I know it to be true. And I want to just reflect on it until it sinks down from my head and into my heart. I want my life, my self-perception to be founded on your uncontainable and unconditional gracious love for me. You know, I wanted to close with a little story about when I was a kid. I think I was in the sixth grade. I had just entered in, or I was about to enter into junior high. It was during the summer. And I was just flexing my independence, and I had asked my folks if a friend and I could actually ride the train down to the loop and spend a day in the city. I would never allow my sixth grader to do this, but it was a different day, and my parents let us do that. And I want to show you the, a building that we went to. Its name is Debated. What what building is that? Stairs Tower. Tower, that's right. You prove yourself to be a true Chicagoan by refusing to call it the Willis Tower, is. Yes. Well, my dad worked there for many, many years. And when we were headed down, my dad said, come down to the office, son, and I'll take you and your buddy out to lunch. And so we said, awesome. And so as we went downtown, I, I will never forget that experience, uh, riding the train, upper deck, looking out the window. My friend and I felt so big. But when we arrived at the train station, we felt so small. You ever done that? The sea of humanity, these powerful people on an agenda, walking in long strides. And we were these little kids, you know, just getting pushed around, you know, Oh, where are we, you know, and I'm just like, just follow the crowd, just follow the crowd, you know. And we, we were just getting shoved around and found ourselves swept up and out of the train station and out into the city, you know, hearts beating with excitement and terror all at the same time. Well, we went to the Sears Tower. It was easy to find. You just look up. And (laughs) with great joy, I said to my buddy, Let's go. I'll show you where my dad works. And we marched into the lobby of the Sears Tower, only to be greeted by a security guard (laughs) carrying a large gun and speaking with a very angry voice Kids, get out of here! And he escorted us out and shooed us to the street. And I'm like, well, that did not go well. (laughs) And my buddy was like, should we just forget it? And I go, no, no, we should not forget it. And I would go walk back into that lobby. And that guy was ticked this time. He says, this is not a place for kids to play. Get out of here, I told you. And he was yelling at us at this point. And, And I said, but, 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 my dad works here and I'm here to see my dad. And he wasn't even listening to me. And he was grabbing me by the elbow. And I'm like, sir, sir, look. And I remember pointing, there was a, uh, at that time they had like a list of businesses on the wall. And one of them was Griffin, Cubic, Stevenson Thompson, Uh, my dad, the Griffin, he was part owner of this bond dealership. And I said, see that Griffin, Cubic, Stevenson Thompson, I'm Jeff Griffin, that's my dad. And he's expecting me. And the guy paused, you know, and at first he still looked grumpy like, but he picked up the phone and he said, I'll check. I got a couple kids down here who say they're here to see Gary Griffin. Oh, okay. Uh, all right then. Uh, I will send them right up, you know. And he's all of a sudden tune changed. And he's like, uh, sorry, Jeff, I-, I apologize. Uh you're right, you know. Please follow me. I'll show you to the elevator. And he escorted us to the elevator, and man, we were sauntering now. We're like, yeah. And it's amazing how as I went up. The doors opened, and there was the desk where the receptionist was, and she knew I was coming. And in fact, the word started to spread through the whole company that Gary's son, Jeff, is coming. And everybody was starting to look to see this, and I felt like a celebrity. I'm telling you, I was like, hi, everybody. It's so nice. To and they're all looking, there he is, there he is, and... My dad came out of his office and picked me up with a big bear hug and greeted my friend, and he said, let me take you guys out to lunch in a fine dining facility, and we went to a fancy restaurant. Isn't the contrast remarkable? Down here in the real world, I was a nuisance, a problem, and deserved to be kicked out and thrown to the street. But there's another world where my identity was very different. Up here in that world, I was the son of the boss, the owner, the president. Can you believe that? And here I was loved and cherished and celebrated. Here I was yelled at and booted. And that's the reality for all of us. Let's just face it. We live in two worlds. There is the world called planet earth, our culture, and you just don't stack up. Sorry, you may be impressive compared to some, but there are many others who would look at you as a joke. And you can let your sense of self-esteem, you can let your sense of love be determined by what the world around you gives you and thinks of you, or you can turn your eyes up and you can say, there is another world. This one doesn't last This world lasts forever. This is the eternal kingdom of my God. And in that kingdom, I happen to be treasured and adored and enjoy the status as the son or daughter of the king of kings, a prince, a princess in his eternal kingdom. I am celebrated, cherished, embraced, and loved with a love my heart can't even comprehend. And so we're forced to ask a question. Which way are we going to look for our own self-perception, for our own foundation in living? And I would challenge us all to look to the eyes of Jesus Christ. That's where we find what we're looking for and who we really are. Would you pray with me? Lord, we are so grateful for this passage of Scripture and for this window into your heart and your grace. We're beat up and we're bruised and at times hopeless, despairing of life. And we're all in need of a fresh encounter with your love, your unconditional love, demonstrated most powerfully by the cross of Christ, willing to die for us, so that we could be freed and reconciled and adopted and celebrated. Lord, thank you for your love. Help us not to believe it alone. Help us to experience it, to drink deeply of it. Today, tomorrow, for all eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.